Greetings in Jesus' name. I'm Bishop Chester Wright. This is the video teaching series, Our Motives from God's Perspective, Part 2. And we're dealing with how shame and the lifestyle of shame affects our motives from God's perspective. This is lesson number three. And uh, we're going to go a little different direction from the last two uh, lessons for a little while here, just to give a different perspective. Uh, let's consider the Beatitudes. Uh, let's consider that the Beatitudes are a new way, quote unquote, of seeing both ourselves and God. So I'll, I'll, let me read them. I'm, we're not going to talk about all of them, just particular, primarily one of them, but I want to, want to just read them. Okay. Matthew chapter five, verse two. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they uh, which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly be exceeding glad, for great is a reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now, obviously, if you watch the first two lessons on shame, uh, the shame lifestyle and how it affects motive uh, here in our Motives from God's Perspective Part 2 series, uh, you know automatically, you're instantly aware of the fact that if I have negative feelings about myself and people are persecuting me and they're reviling me and they're saying all manner of uh, evil against me falsely, I'm not going to be able to take that very easily. So immediately, my shame prevents me from being able to hear what the Word of God says, believe what the Word of God says, and be thankful for what the Word of God says, because I don't want this, do I? I don't want this. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to be spoken. I don't want to be reviled. I don't want to be I, I don't want all evil to be spoken against me because I already, I already do that to myself. At times, especially, I, I beat up myself. So I don't want to go through that. So automatically, shame puts me in a place where it's very difficult for me to not only obey the word of God, but to be thankful for the word of God and believe what it says. That I'm blessed. Happy are ye to be envied is what the Greek word for blessed means. Happy are ye to be envied. What? For being persecuted? For being talked bad about? For having all kind of false things said about me that were negative? I'm supposed to be thankful for that? Yes. But I can't be if I'm not whole. And I'm not whole if I've got shame that eats on me and works on me. No matter, it doesn't have to be there all the time. Because it never goes away. It either is on the surface and I'm dealing with it, or I buried it in my subconscious. So let's consider the possibility concerning the Beatitudes, that the Beatitudes are instructions for overcoming shame and other debilitating conditions in our lives which retard 
or prevent spiritual growth? What if each one of these deal with that? Now, again, I, in this lesson, this lesson, I'm not going to, I can't talk about all of them. It's not time to talk about all of them, obviously. It would be a whole nother series altogether uh, of teaching just to talk about the Beatitudes and their significance. But let's also consider the possibility that the Beatitudes are progressive. We could might be able to call them a spiritual growth chart. What if they were? What if that's what they were? If this is true, what or who is it that he wishes us to see differently? So if the Beatitudes is supposed to be a mirror of the word that we look into, he wants us to see ourselves in the perspective of the word. Okay? So if that's the case, we must see ourselves differently first so that we can see God differently. So the Beatitudes are a blessing to those who see themselves by the word of God and then see God by the word of God. Praise God. So in this lesson, we're going to primarily focus on one one of the Beatitudes. One, the beginning one. Okay? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What What does poor in spirit mean? It was translated in 16, or published in 1611. It was translated before then. I don't know what that meant then, but what does it mean to us today? Well, that's why we have to believe that the Bible is divinely inspired as original languages, because what does poor in spirit mean? That you're all down in the mouth all the time? No. Uh, let me give a paraphrase, and then I'm going to read. I'm going to read to you some of the translations of this verse, so we can, from using these different translations, we're going to get the perspective of what the Greek is actually trying to say to us, and the Lord therefore is trying to say to us. A paraphrase would be: Happy are those. This is not a translation. Uh, happy are those who recognize their poverty of spirit, for all the riches of God belong to them. So what does that mean? Let's let's look at how it's translated in several different places just to get a feel for it. The expanded Bible uh, reads this way. Blessed, they are blessed or blessed are those who uh, realize their spiritual poverty are poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them is theirs. The amplified version says, blessed, happy to be happy, to be envied and spiritually prosperous with life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation, regardless of their outward conditions, are the poor in spirit, the humble, who rate themselves insignificant, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the word blessed means just the definition that Amplified gives for the word bless speaks of someone who has been delivered and healed from shame, and now they're whole. Happy to be envied, spiritually prosperous, with life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation, regardless of our outward conditions. Now, 
if I've got shame and I'm trying to earn God's love and earn other people's love and acceptance and things aren't going well, well what is what is my response to that? My response to that is, um, if you love me, this would be the case, that'd be the case, whatever. If you love me, God, you do this for me if you love me, if you really love me. Or we treat people like that. We have tre- I, I've had the experience in the past, somebody that's not currently in my life, but was in my life for years, uh, that that's the way they approached me all the time. It was a guilt trip. They were always trying to manipulate me, put me on a guilt trip to get me to do what they wanted me to do. They didn't trust me enough that they could simply tell me what they wanted me to do and that there was any chance I would do it. They approached me as if I was automatically going to say no and automatically resist their request. Well, that's kind of hurtful. It's humiliating. It's, uh, can be very painful. I mean, that's really what you think of me. The only way you can approach me is put me on a guilt trip. You can't just talk to me. So the next verse, next, uh, translation. This is the easy to read translation. Um, Great blessings belong to those who know they are spiritually in need. Oh, now we're getting to it. God's kingdom belongs to them. Weiss expanded translation of the New Testament takes it even to another dimension. Spiritually prosperous are the destitute and helpless in the realm of the spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The revelation that without him I could do nothing. That's simply what this is talking about. I come to the revelation that in me, that is in my flesh, there's no good thing, so there's nothing I can do good for God. But I can, by receiving his love and letting his love flow through me and work through me, he can do good through me. But I'm helpless. I cannot do good of my own. And thank God. Thank God I can't do good on my own. Because if I could, I'd rely on me. But when I come to the understanding, I come to the place of wholeness because I've been delivered of my shame, healed of my shame, and I'm no longer negative about myself. I'm not putting myself down by acknowledging he's God I'm not. And so therefore, what can I do for him in my Pentecostal upbringing? There's what I call the Pentecostal preposition. I heard it. I heard it till it's so deeply embedded in me. I can't get rid of it. Even though I don't believe in it. We are to live for God and work for God. He said, if I need anything, I wouldn't tell you. We're not doing anything for God. He said, without me, you can do nothing. So what can we do for God? How can we live for God when in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing? And he left me with a sinful nature. When he when He washed away my sins and I was baptized, his name was put upon me. The blood was applied to my life. And I was filled with the divine nature, according to Peter. I became a partaker of the divine nature when I was baptized with the Holy Ghost. I, I, 
that didn't take away my my sinful nature. My sinful nature is still here. I give it the open door, it's going to act up. I give it the opportunity, it's going to do that. But I can't resist it on my own. And so in being healed, I made peace with God over my sinful nature. I'm not blaming him. I'm not blaming me. This is the condition I'm living in. I need to acknowledge that condition. I need to acknowledge that I can't do this myself. I remember uh, my wife and I got married on a Friday night, 1st of November, 68. I was in flight training. I had to be at flight training Monday morning. We didn't have a honeymoon. We just went back, spent the weekend at our little house we were already living in. We didn't even, we didn't even spend any money going anyplace else. We just went home. We'd never lived there together, obviously. So uh, we went home, stayed, spent the weekend. Uh, a year and a year, a little over a year and a half, or not even a year and a half later, uh, I'm out of the Navy because of a injury. Uh, I've got a paralyzed right shoulder blade, and they medically retired me. And first of January of seventy, I'm now full time evangelist. And we traveled all those years, and then. In September of seven, or not all all those months. In September of seventy, I finally yielded a call to come to Annapolis, Maryland. And so then we're a home missionary, and you need to have the time or the money as a home missionary to have a honeymoon. So the first anniversary had gone by, second one went by, they kept going by, and finally we're coming up to our twentieth wedding anniversary, first of November of eighty eight, and. We've been married 20 years. We've been here in town 18. And uh, uh, we had a little bit of spending money at that time. Uh, and I, I said, let's, uh, let's go on a trip for our 20th anniversary, and uh, it'll be our honeymoon. So my wife was all on board with that. Well, we'd heard Bermuda was a beautiful place. We'd never been there before, never even considered going. But the Lord blessed us with... Uh, a really good deal on a hotel and the airfares were fairly cheap at that time. And it was a nonstop from Baltimore to Bermuda then. And so we went and here we are on this beautiful island, just absolutely gorgeous. Everything. I, I, I took my camera and it was filmed back then. And I shot like 20 rolls of film the first day. And I dropped it down to about 12 the next day. And it was about seven or eight the third day. And I finally just quit taking pictures because if I was going to take a picture of everything that was beautiful, uh, I couldn't afford the film or the developing. And so I just quit because it was beautiful. So here I am. It's our honeymoon 20th anniversary trip, as strange as that sounds. And we're in Bermuda, one of the most beautiful places on earth. And it is the last morning of the last full day we're there. We're going to be leaving the next day coming home. And in that environment and in that wonderful time with my wife, I am really, really struggling with me. I'm struggling with me bad, bad. And I remember getting up on that morning early and going into the bathroom and closing the door. So I wouldn't, hopefully wouldn't disturb her, my wife sleeping in the bed. And I, I was so distraught with myself. 
and uh, this is 88. And at that point, that was four years after I had first been ministered to for shame. But I kind of had a little bit of a relapse there uh, in my feelings about myself, and the Lord was trying to teach me some things. And I remember there was uh, where I was sitting, there was a mirror right in front of me on the wall, and I couldn't... <laughs> I'm trying not to look at my stare at myself, right? I'm trying to talk to God. And I remember saying to the Lord, it's hopeless. You know, you know how you, you sometimes you say something to someone, including Jesus, that you, you think you know what they're going to say, but you need them to say it anyway. So you say stuff to try to provoke them or encourage them to say it. So that's what I was doing because I was expecting him to go, no, no, no. So I said, it's hopeless. Lord, it's hopeless. I'm a sinner. I've always been a sinner. And I'm always going to be a sinner. And, I, and I'm waiting for him to go, no, 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 my son. That's, that's not true. You're my child. You're not. And he didn't. He said, you're right. You're a sinner. You've always been a sinner. Always going to be one in this life. And he paused that I am totally dumbfounded. But he said, I'm good and I'm in you. And you're good because I'm good and I'm in you. And I'm the source of your goodness. I'm the source of your righteousness. I'm the source of anything good you have ever done or ever will do. Huh. You talk about a shocking revelation. That was a shocking revelation. I, when I got home, I immediately began to study the word righteousness. I thought I knew what righteousness was because all my life it had been preached to me that you are righteous by doing right. So you become righteous by doing right. Of course, it didn't take much study in the word, focusing on righteousness to find out that you can't become righteous by doing right. You do right because you're made righteousness, righteous. Righteousness precedes doing right. You don't do right to become righteousness. And I began to minister as the Lord would give me more and more of the revelation of righteousness. I ministered on that with no intent to do so, no plan, didn't know he was going to do that. I just kept studying. Every time I would pray to speak, he'd give me a new element of it, and I would teach that. Without intending to do so, I taught on righteousness for 33 straight services. I, I it, was, it changed my life because I did not understand that what God did for me in February of 84 when he took the shame out of me was he gave me righteousness, but I didn't understand it. And I didn't know how to walk in it. So at times I would act like someone who didn't have righteousness because of that. And the Bible says, Psalms 32 and 1, blessed are they which do hunger, blessed are they, blessed is the man, excuse me, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are Covered. Whoa, whoa. That was part of my study. 
I go, what, what, wait, all my life, I had sin thrown at me in such a way that God was going to tell everybody what you're doing. No. It's his will, if we allow it to be so, to deal with our sins and nobody ever know but him and us. Now, I tell you, when he exposes sin, when he's trying to deal with me, and I won't even acknowledge those sins, and I sure don't repent, I've heard it. I've preached it. Exposure of sin is God's last act of mercy. So what does it mean, blessed are the pure in spirit? Or excuse me, blessed are the, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who come to the end of themselves. Now, I can't do that when I have shame. Shame's got me fighting for survival. I'm fighting against everything that's trying to destroy me from the inside out. Fighting against it, I'm trying to survive. I can't get the end myself. Because that's a horrible thing. I don't want to come to the end of myself because the end of myself is bad. I'm damaged. Something's wrong with me. But blessed are the poor in spirit. For those who come to the end of their ability. The Lord taught me this about me. He told me what happened in that bathroom in Bermuda. Friday of the first week of November, 1988. He said, you're never more spiritual than when you come to the end of yourself and you're ready to quit and give up. He said, but the question is, who are you going to give up on? Are you going to give up on me? Or are you going to give up on you and your ability to earn your way with He said that was my most spiritual point up to that point. Now, he is so determined to get us to that place that he understands he's taking the risk of losing us because we could give up on him instead of ourselves. And when I when he, I understood what he meant by giving up on me, not, not giving up on my salvation, not giving up on my desire to be a child of God and to be a vessel, an instrument he could use, but giving up on my human ability to do what I will to do and to not do what I will not to do so that I can please him. I give, I gave up on my ability to do that. And he's constantly added understanding and understanding to that. And that's why it would be an awesome study and series to, to really talk about the Beatitudes and each one of them, what they mean. But in this series, uh, this is where I'm, we're going to be right here, uh, right now, because this is where a person with shame has got to get to. You've got to get healed enough. You can come to the end of yourself. I've asked this in different places. You might have thought of this, but uh, how many books of the New Testament did the apostle Saul write? And the answer, of course, is none. The apostle Saul didn't write any books of the New Testament till he became the apostle Paul. 
why did he start out being called Saul and why did he become Paul? Because the word translated from the Greek Paul means little or small and the root word is end or come to an end. So Paul didn't become Paul until he came to the end of himself. We read that in the first lesson from Romans chapter 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank my God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. So in confronting myself, in confronting the way I feel about myself, in confronting the way I think people feel about me, I have to get healed, delivered and healed enough so that I can see myself through God's eyes because that's the only source of worth that is acceptable to God. I have to see me like he sees me in all of my weakness and inability so that I'm going to rely on him. Let's read uh, two more. So I'm going to read Weiss again. Uh, we says of Matthew 5 and 3, spiritually prosperous are the destitute and helpless in the realm of the spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God's word translation says it this way, blessed are those who recognize they are spiritually helpless. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And then finally, the contemporary English version says it probably as pointedly and succinctly as I can find in any of the translations. God blesses those people who depend only on him. They belong to the kingdom of heaven. There it is right there. God blesses those people who depend only on him. Now, you say, well, that's not what the other translations say. They all said the same thing. But you have to interpolate, not just interpret, but interpolate what they said. And you have to have a revelation of what they said to get to this point. But this is, whoever translated the contemporary English version This is what they saw in the Greek. And this is what they put out there. And from my perspective, (laughs) I I believe it just like that. I believe all the other translations, the way they put it, every element of it is true. I am destitute of my ability to do this. I am helpless. I am spiritually helpless. And I thank God for the, that he enabled me to recognize that because I couldn't see it myself. But I like the way this is put. God blesses those people who depend only on him. They belong to the kingdom of God. In concluding this lesson, let's just uh, finalize a look at the Beatitudes for a little bit. The Beatitudes are a series of profound paradoxes. And the dictionary defines paradox as a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. The Beatitudes are true. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's a paradox. On the surface, it looks contradictory. How can you be blessed if you're poor in the spirit? How can you be comforted if you're mourning? 
How can you hunger and thirst after righteousness as the blessing? The blessing is hungering and thirst after righteousness with the guarantee of being filled. How, how do those make sense? Because when you understand them, they're no longer contradictory. They make full sense. So the first profound paradox about the uh, Beatitudes is the richer, poor, the poor are rich, the emptier full, those who are nothing are everything. <laughs> We've already talked about that. The second profound paradox about the Beatitudes is we are all persons of eternal worth and at the same time totally unworthy of the mercies of God, the mercies God bestows upon us. Get that one more, one more time. We are all persons of eternal worth. And yet at the same time, we are totally unworthy of the mercies that God so freely bestows upon us if we will allow him to and receive them. And then finally, the third paradox, profound paradox is this. While each of us is unique, a creature of singular and infinite potential. Each of us is also ordinary, sharing with our brothers and sisters all the traits and experiences that make us humans. We are all capable of the same heights and of the same depths. That's why God can say he is no respecter of persons. So when I have shame, I'm a respecter of persons. I see everybody else better than me, or I think they see. Every, well, I think everybody sees themselves better than me. Either they do, they do. I think they do, or I. <laughs> either I think they do. Either I do about myself, or I think they do, or they do. But the problem is, it's how I deal with all that. The problem is not how people treat me. It's how I respond to how they treat me. And I cannot respond to how people treat me differently than I treat myself. If somebody is bad-mouthing me and I'm used to bad-mouthing myself, I cannot, I can't respond to that positively. I'm not going to be able to. I have no ability to. But if I'm at peace with myself because I've been delivered and healed of shame and made whole, if I'm at peace with myself, therefore at peace with God. Because I can't be at peace with myself without being at peace with God. But being at peace with God is not the same as being at peace with myself. If I'm at peace with God and peace with myself, then how other people treat me has nothing to do with me. I have said this many times. Don't let other people make their problem your problem. And if you're whole, you're able to do that. You're able to recognize that the way that people are acting and how they're treating you, what they're saying, it's their problem. They're telling you they got a problem. But the way I react to it either prevents them, I don't let their problem become my problem because I don't internalize it, take ownership of it, or in my <coughs> shame, I don't have any choice but to respond to it and respond to it defensively. And responding to it defensively, I've let them add their problem to my problem. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, I pray upon you and I,
the spirit of revelation of the grace of God upon us that we might see ourselves in God's eyes, not as rejected, worthless human beings, but as people who have no ability as humans to do that which is pleasing to God, but also the revelation that he loves us and that it is his plan and his will to work in us and through us to produce through us what pleases him. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. 